Now what's the word? Democracy. 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 You need to know. Democracy. Make it grow. Democracy. The seeds you sow will spread democracy. You need to know. Democracy. Make it grow. Democracy. Don't let it go. Democracy. Don't let it go. Democracy. We are your election connection. We are your election connection. We are your election connection. Welcome, one and all, to this week's election connection on your grassroots community radio station, WFMP 106.5 FM. I'm your host, Ruth Newman, here today with Councilman Andrew Owen, representing the 9th District, which happens to be my district, and taking the reins from Bill Hollander, whom we appreciate for his longstanding service as our councilman. So welcome, Councilman Andrew Owen, to Election Connection. Thank you, Ruth. I'm so happy to be here. I'm excited to be in the new position as the 9th District Metro Councilman, and I'm happy to be on your show. Thank you. And we're all excited to be here in a new year, hopefully a new era. (laughs) And uh, I wanted to start out by mentioning your father, Tom Owen, who was a longtime councilman for the 8th District, and I uh, was wondering whether you bring any of his vision to your new position on the council. I think I bring a lot of uh, him and his vision with me to the council. I, it's funny, when I talk about the 8th District and the 9th District, I, I like to call them sister districts. They share a lot of things in common. Uh, including uh, Beargrass Creek, which runs kind of uh, along the border. But I was privileged to watch my father uh, do this job for a long time, and in my opinion, do, do it very well. And so not only did he imprint his vision of how cities should work and how neighborhoods should work on me over a lifetime of being together, but he set an example that uh, that I will try to live up to. I think the thing that is most important to talk about when you talk about my dad is that very few people ever questioned his motives for why he was serving the people of Louisville. I think people always felt like he had their best interests at heart and had the best interests of Metro Louisville at heart. And if you can live that vision and that ethic and people see you for that type of service, then I don't think you can really do much better in terms of public service. So I'll try to do what I can to uh, carry forward his legacy. Yeah, trust is a big thing right now in politics. So you have a background in urban planning And how do you think that your background in urban planning informs your decision-making on the council? There's no way for me to separate the two. And part of this comes from my dad. But I remember going to Chicago when I was a wee lad in maybe the late 70s and just being blown away by the energy of the city and wondering how in the world does all of this work together? And ever since then, I've been fascinated by how do cities work or not work and how do neighborhoods work or not. And that kind of led me down the path of of urban planning. And 
coming from that perspective where cities are living entities that are constantly changing and evolving is the way I view the city and view the neighborhood. And you can't separate that from my decision making on how I will vote at council and how I will respond to constituents and neighbors. We can talk more specifically about what that means. I'm happy to do that. But very little informs my view of cities and how they should work more than my urban planning background. I'm wondering, when we consider some of the urgent matters that we in Louisville and in other communities are facing, like homelessness, gun violence, the practices of our police, the opioid crisis, all of these really urgent matters, I'm wondering if you think that there are models out there in other communities, perhaps, that we could follow instead of starting from scratch and trying to reinvent the wheel. Are there plans or are there activities that are in other communities that seem to have a good track record already? The answer to that question is most definitely yes. What you were talking about is all of the things, all of the complex layers of issues that make cities so fascinating. It's sociological issues, it's built environment, it's transportation, it's healthcare, it's all of the layers of public policy, sociology, you know, all of those things go into making a city what it is. And it really is this kind of human experiment, right, that we've been practicing for however many thousands of years now. So that's, I think, all of those questions about the complex issues that we face are all of the things that make cities so fascinating and make me enjoy the areas of urban planning policy and the crossroads of those things. Um, but yes, I, I, have, I, I have thought for a long time that we're not unique here in Louisville or here in the United States. People all over the globe face many of the same issues and are trying to come up with solutions to those problems. I haven't had a chance to speak with Mayor Greenberg uh, yet, but one of the things that I think makes a ton of sense to me is to have an office in Metro government, really in the mayor's office, of one or two people, and their job is to look at best practices around the globe and look at how they were implemented and determine whether those solutions would be effective here in Louisville. I'll give you a quick example. For a long time here in Louisville, when someone calls uh, the dispatch at 911 and, and reports that there's a person who has mental health issues, forever uh, they would send out a police officer and the police officer who is not in the least bit trained in social services would do the best they could with their, with their training when, you know, when trying to deal with someone that has mental health issues. And in Portland, Oregon, for example, they've had a diversionary practice for 30 years that has been incredibly successful, where when that same call comes into dispatch, they uh, dispatch a social service person as opposed to a police officer. And many people, when I talk about that, say, well, isn't that dangerous? And don't, don't they, the social service providers have issues once they arrive? Well, when you look at the data from Portland, a very small percentage of those calls 
did they need to end up sending a police officer as a backup to that social service call? And so it was a, an incredibly effective program that we here in Louisville have finally, within the last year, started implementing a similar program. And that's just a small example, one of hundreds of examples of, of programs that are, that are operating around the globe that we could use effectively here in Louisville. You know, for me, that raises the question of communication and coordination among the various departments, like the police and firefighters, mental health, paramedics, social workers, all those people who are engaged in public safety and health. What do you think about the communication or lack thereof and coordination among all of these different city groups? Well, organizations just in general tend to silo themselves. So this isn't unique to, to government, but I, I think it's an issue that has to be addressed across the board. And I would argue that communication cannot be effective until there is effective communication at the top. And, and what I'll point to is what has been a history in Louisville of a lack of extensive communication between Metro Hall, the mayor's office, and City Hall, which is Metro Council. And so if you don't have effective communication there, and you know, each side of the street, where we're literally across the street from each other, one side of the street doesn't know what's going on on the other side of the street, then how are we going to expect that the different departments within Metro government are gonna be able to communicate effectively and also know what each is doing hand in glove? It isn't gonna happen. And I will say that one of the things that I'm very pleased about currently is that Mayor Greenberg talked about that extensively during his campaign that he was going to do a better job reaching out to, to Metro Council and needed our help and um, wanted to work better with us to try to solve the city's problems. And two things have happened already in his administration. Number one, his many of his closest advisors are former Metro Council people. He brought over Barbara Sexton Smith. He brought over Nicole George and David James and Keisha Dorsey, all of whom formerly served on Metro Council. So that right there is already a step in the right direction that shows me that that line of communication is going to be much better. And then the other thing is that uh, after speaking to, to many people who have been on council for a long time, they will tell you that they have already spent a significant amount of time talking to and visiting with the new mayor about their districts and about things that they want to do uh, to move things forward in a way that wasn't really done in the previous number of administrations. And listen, I'm not throwing Mayor Fisher under the bus. This is something that has been kind of inherent to the relationship between the mayor and, and Metro Council for decades. This is not a, a Mayor Fisher issue, but I'm very pleased that, uh, that Mayor Greenberg has decided to uh, ask Metro Council for help. And I certainly think that when we're all rowing in the same direction, I'm optimistic that we can solve a lot of our longstanding problems. So much is related to just the way the systems work and the tradition of how they've worked in the past. Ruth, yeah. it's never made sense. I mean, you think about it, and for, for decades, we've had a, a Democrat sitting in, in the mayor's office 
and a supermajority of Democrats on Metro Council or on the Board of Aldermen. And so there shouldn't be significant policy differences in terms of pure politics as it relates to organization. And yet there's been this wall, mm-hmm. you know, that runs down 6th Street <laughs> between the Metro Hall and City Hall. And, and it just has never made sense to me. You know, again, I'm pleased that it looks like we're going to be headed in a different direction yeah, as it relates to it, that communication. And that, I think, too, is part of our culture that we have to start shifting in our culture. Because as you said, it's pretty inherent to most organizations that they kind of circle the wagons. This idea of having some systemic or systematic way of regularly communicating with other levels of government, like, for example, the state legislature, which is not democratic, (laughs) it's a super majority Republican. So do you have any sense of how to relate to the state legislature and what the relationship should be between a, a city council and a state legislature? So it's a very interesting question. And one of the reasons I'm so optimistic, I'm new to council, but one of the reasons I'm so optimistic at this point in time is that we have an incredible amount of turnover in government right now. We have seven new council members came on starting January 3rd with me, seven of 26. When Keisha Dorsey and David James uh, moved across the street to join the mayor's administration, we will have two more new council people that will join us to bring our total of new council people to nine. And then Councilwoman uh, Cassie Chambers Armstrong is running for Morgan McGarvey's old state Senate seat. And if she wins that seat, we will have to appoint another new member to fill the 8th district seat. Mm-hmm. So we potentially have 10 of 26 new council people. We've got a new administration. We have a number of new state legislators, particularly on the Democratic side. And some of those state legislators and I have already talked about having a standing monthly meeting to try to keep each other abreast on, for them, what's happening at the local level here at Metro Council, and for us, you know, what's happening in state government. But it goes beyond that. Again, we are, like you said, dealing with a supermajority Republican uh, legislature. And just talking generally about communication, One of the things that I think is incredibly important is that we continue to talk to one another, to talk to our neighbors, our family members, our friends that have different viewpoints than we do. If we stop talking to one another, then this democratic experiment will not continue to be successful. It just won't. And so in doing so, we have to continue to be respectful to one another, We have to understand that each one of us brings something different to the table, that we bring a lifetime of experiences to the table that are very different. And if we respect those things, then we ought to be able to continue to have conversations and find common ground. And let me just talk quickly about common ground. We have a Jefferson County delegation of state legislators that probably have quite a bit in common and may have more in common than the Republican state legislators from Jefferson County have with their fellow Republicans from out in the state. And so that's another place where I think that we could make some serious improvement and have the entire Jefferson County delegation from both sides of the aisle, Metro Council and state legislature say, listen, 
what do we as Metro Louisville, what do we need from the state to try to make this place the best place it can be? And again, I think there's a lot of potential space there for agreement and common ground. And if we could present somewhat of a unified front uh, with both local Republicans and Democrats to the rest of the state legislature and make a case for investing money in the largest city in the state and how that investing that money could raise the tide for all boats. I think that's a powerful argument to make in Frankfurt. Yeah. And on that subject, too, what do you think about, as you at one point characterized it, the urban-rural divide in that most of the rural part of Kentucky has a different experience in life than cosmopolitan Kentucky? And what about communicating with them, opening the doors to some kind of relationship with people who obviously have different perspectives than we as city people have? Well, I think the the most important thing you can do from that regard, in addition to just talking to one another, is trying to visit with one another in the place from which they're from. I'll give you an example. I've already had some conversations with my new Republican colleagues here on Metro Council. And one of the things I said to them was, I want to, as soon as possible, come have lunch with you at your favorite lunch place in your district. Number one, because I probably don't even know it exists. you know. And number two, I want to get a feel for who you are in your environment and why it is that this is the place that you like to go to lunch, you know, the most. And, and us here in Louisville continuing to go visit the state parks and continuing to go to, you know, restaurants and inns and hotels out in the state and appreciating, you know, all of the things that they offer. And, and the flip side of that is inviting people to, to come to Louisville and see all of the great things about Louisville that we love. In Kentucky, it's kind of unique this urban-rural divide, because in states where you have one kind of larger city, you know, Illinois' relationship with Chicago is, is a good example, there always seems to be a little bit more tension than, say, Ohio with its cities, because there's not just one large city. It's Cleveland and Cincinnati and Toledo and Akron and Dayton. And, and, and so it, it's kind of a funny relationship when you have one, you know, dominant city. But one thing that that does is just about everyone who lives in the state of Kentucky has friends or family members that now live in Louisville. You know, you you find that to be the case a lot. You meet somebody and they say, I'm from, you know, Adair County or whatever, and my parents are here visiting me. And the more of that kind of coming and walking in the places and in the shoes of other people is absolutely part of that journey that has to take place to try to tear down the wall between the urban and the rural. I was wondering if you had any opinions on the homelessness crisis that so many of our cities are are dealing with right now, including Louisville. Are there any alternative approaches that you know of instead of just simply going out and clearing away homeless encampments? So when I was campaigning for this office, I told pretty much anybody that would listen that the most difficult issue for me to get my arms around and articulate a path forward on was the homeless issue. Because I want to, first and foremost, uh, address the issue with compassion. I, I start there. But at the same time, I recognize the fact that having a civil society that functions well, you can't 
have people standing at the bottom of every interstate ramp, you know, asking for money and multiple groups of people living under every underpass. The homeless issue is is a very complex issue. I recently, last week, got to visit the jail here in Louisville. And one of the things that the director said was that we're jailing people for being homeless. And that's about the worst possible approach that we could have. Natalie Harris, who's the director of the Coalition for the Homeless, gave me a book uh, during the campaign. And the title of the book is Homelessness is a Housing Problem. So while, of course, part of the problem is addiction and part of the problem is, is mental health, and those are certainly issues, what this book tries to argue, and I think successfully, is that it's structural issues relating to having enough affordable housing in certain communities that dictate the size of the homeless population. So how do we address the issue? In the long term, it's create more affordable housing. In the short term, we have Hope Village, which I think is a a very short-term approach to trying to find ways to have a place for people to go, but also to be able to bring social services to them in one setting. So I think that's effective. And if we could replicate that uh, at two or three or four different locations around town, that would be a a short-term way to, to address the issue. From a mental health standpoint, you know, in the late 70s, we defunded all of the state-run mental hospitals, and I think the pendulum swung too far in that direction. And, you know, part of the problem was that we were putting people in in mental hospitals and throwing away the key and and not trying to help them get better. Um, But I think there are plenty of people out there who are a danger to themselves and to others, and we should try to create a situation where We can have them be in a safe, supportive setting for more than three days at a time. And then, obviously, we have a lot of buildings downtown that are empty as people tend to work more and more from home. We have a lot of uh, empty office buildings, and doing an adaptive reuse of those buildings seems to me like a a perfect way to create additional affordable housing. So we need to continue to to invest in the Affordable Housing Trust Fund, and we need to uh, continue to think about ways that we can come up with permanent solutions for people to have a place to call home. And, you know, just the very fact of referring to them as homeless people, it just glosses over all of their various individual situations. There's just so many different situations that people are finding themselves under. Have you heard of a proposed development called Prospect Cove? Does that ring a bell? I have. I don't Uh know what the status of it is. I just read that it's the proposal for a 198-unit apartment complex out in Prospect on River Road. That's like a lot of units. And they're calling it one of the affordable housing options that could be developed in a different part of the city. And I'm wondering about, you know, what you were saying with with abandoned offices in the downtown. Do you think it's a good idea to think about putting affordable housing units, especially with that kind of density, out into more suburban areas, which are not close to public transit or social services. So what is your feeling about that? I think it's always good for each part of the city to have some affordable housing. What density you create, obviously, we've learned our lesson from the public housing nightmare of the 50s and 60s, where we built thousands of units of public housing 
you know, in downtowns all across the country. And it so clearly became an experiment of warehousing people, people that ended up, you know, losing hope and all of the problems that came about because of yes, uh, yes. of doing that, the, the density of the public housing. So I love scattered housing. Um, I think it really works better than having units all together. With that said, one thing you have to remember about affordable housing, and I say that in quotes, is affordability is different in different markets. And so a lot of times when they talk about a percentage of the median income in a particular area, some pretty high rent can be considered affordable, (laughs) if that makes sense. My second job out of college was working for a nonprofit affordable housing developer. And so I do understand a little bit better than most people how these types of projects, how the financing is structured and how the state and federal incentives are allocated. A lot of times you hear this project has an affordability component and you have to look pretty closely at it to figure out, okay, at what level are we talking about here? Are we talking about affordable as it relates to the other rents in prospect? Or are we talking about affordable as it relates to other rents in other parts of the city? When you're building affordable housing, you have to decide what population you're targeting. If you want to target people at 10% of the median income, then you're going to have to have more layers of financing to be able to sustain that level of rent. I think it's always important to remember that people toss around affordable housing and you really have to drill down and say, okay, are we talking 90% of median? Because if we are, that's not particularly affordable. Speaking of high density, back in the, I guess it was um, the early 80s, I had a small job working for the High Commission on Refugees and I read a lot of stuff on refugee camps. And I read one article, and it was a a guy who had a lot of experience, many decades of designing refugee camps. He he said that in his experience, when they laid out tents in straight lines, one after the other, what they found was a lot more illness, a lot more violence, and a lot more death. When they took tents and made big circles with them, and then had gardens, some kind of gardens or some kind of activity in the middle of them. They had less illness, less violence, and less death. And and you're right. I lived in a, one of those high-rise projects back in the 60s, and I can tell you it was depressing. When you have only proposals for living situations laid out in these straight lines, like you know most of our neighborhoods are as well, laid out in straight lines, And you don't have common areas, you don't have walking paths or green space or community centers or services. Are you really looking at the long-term health of that community? Well, you're speaking my language. That's what urban planning, in my opinion, others might argue differently. I mean, there's a lot of components, transportation and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. as, as well and connectivity. But really, when I talk about urban planning, I talk about the built environment. And I think the built environment is incredibly important. I think how each built environment makes humans react differently. It makes us feel differently. And so during the campaign, I talked about wanting to invest in the Ninth District and in Metro Louisville in the public infrastructure, because all those small investments in all the little things, 
It's all of the things that make a street or a neighborhood or an area feel good. It's a place that you want to be. You want to be outside with other people. All of those little things add up and they make a place that everyone wants to be. And that built environment can make you feel good about a place or not. And so I think that's incredibly important. I think we need to invest in that. The more we can invest in in those little things around Metro Louisville, the better off we'll be. And it's an investment in public infrastructure. It's an investment in local shops and businesses, because the more people that want to be out on the street, you know, walking and sticking their head in a shop and spending some money, the better it is for local shops and business. But it's also an investment in public safety, because, again, the more people that are out and about in a town square or uh, along a commercial corridor, the more eyes on the street and the and the safer a place is. So it's really an investment where you get a big bang for the buck. If you just tuned in, you're listening to Andrew Owen, Ninth District Metro Councilman, presenting his views and priorities for making Louisville a more vital and vibrant city. I'm Ruth Newman, your host here on Election Connection. If you have issues or observations or experiences or insights that you would like to showcase over WFMP 106.5 FM, go right now to our website, www.forwardradio.org, and click on the appropriate tab. We're here for you, so what's to lose? Give us a whirl. Now back to our conversation with 9th District Metro Councilman Andrew Owen. Back in 2006, I was working for a candidate for office and I was doing some research and I discovered that the planning commission back then was made up mostly of developers, realtors, and subcontractors. And it's really difficult. I had a really hard time. There was no description and I had a hard time finding out who was even on the planning commission. But what I think I found was that of the 10 members of our current planning commission, six of them are developers, realtors, and subcontractors. First of all, do you think of that as a conflict of interest? I don't know that I think of it as a conflict of interest. I mean, I think what they're looking for for the planning commission is people who understand the intricacies of the process. At the moment, I can only think of a a couple of people that are currently on the planning commission. I I should know who who they all are, and I will shortly. Um, But I do think it's important that people bring some background to the table where they understand how the process works and the difficulties that people face, both from a regulatory standpoint and from a financing standpoint. I don't necessarily think it's a conflict of interest. I don't think it hurts to have a not insignificant percentage of the planning commission that does not have that background. It would make sense to me if you put somebody who had a social service background on the planning commission. It would make sense to me if somebody who had an environmental science background on the planning commission or somebody who was an artist. I don't think it ought to be all people who who don't have a specific background, but I think having a mixture, a balance of those two uh, makes some sense. When you say conflict of interest, these are people that are volunteering their time and they don't have a particular interest in a particular 
project. So in that sense, conflict of interest, it doesn't rise to that level for me. But I can see how you could see potentially that there could be a conflict of interest, particularly if somebody moved from the planning commission back over to the other side on the development side or vice versa. You kept moving back and forth across that divide. I remember conversations with my mother who lived out in a development south of San Diego, California called East Lake. It's huge. At one time, it was the fastest growing community in, in the country. I remember her telling me that so much pressure had to be put on the developers to come up with common areas and green space because for them, there was no profit in it. They just wanted to build the homes and turn it over and, and get paid. They didn't want to put in sidewalks and pathways, you know, and parks and stuff and things that would help make a good community. And so that's what I worry about with developers and realtors being on the commission too, is that they just don't have that kind of holistic perspective. They're looking at it in terms of building, you know, homes and residences and offices and, and retail. I would push back on that a little bit though, because uh -huh. until very recently, most of the development that was being done in Metro Louisville was being done by people and companies that were based here, which is pretty unusual and not necessarily a good thing. But these are neighbors and people that live here more recently, especially as it relates to the multifamily apartment development community. We've had many, many, many more companies come from out of town seeking opportunities here in Louisville. And those groups have a little bit less incentive to building something that is decent for the long haul for the community. But that really hasn't been predominant path for most of the developments that, that have happened here in Louisville over the years. Um, and, and I would also argue that you have, you have, like in any other field, you have developers that are good at what they do and some that are not as good at what they do. And developers who, who focus on bigger picture things and developers who don't. I also hear constantly when people talk about developers, they talk about the developers lining their pockets. And, and of course, there are situations where that happens. But there is a substantial amount of financial risk that's being taken here. And so just to say they don't care, they don't look at it from a holistic perspective, I, I don't think is entirely fair. I also wanted to talk about a statement that you made. And I'm quoting you here, that you prefer seeding for and cultivating local businesses rather than giving away the farm in a competition against other jurisdictions for already established companies. And I really like that idea of seeding and cultivating local businesses. I had some experience with that also when I lived in Duluth, Minnesota, but I'd like to hear your um, ideas on that, how to do that, how to cultivate local rather than just trying to draw in outside businesses. So I am a little bit of an incurable entrepreneur, um, and so I run in some circles with people who try to find technologies or business ideas spinning out of universities and try to make the transition between, you know, idea, technology, and, you know, functioning business. And so I've heard too many occasions where those 
types of people have gone to local government or gone to state government and said, here's the idea, here's where we're trying to get to long term in terms of number of jobs, in terms of you know all sorts of, of potential here, and here's what we need from local and state government to get there. And I've heard on too many occasions that they were not heard here locally or at the state legislature. And they were heard by other places and they decided to leave. And I think that's unconscionable for a couple of reasons. Number one, if somebody is already here in Louisville, they're here for a reason. They're here because they chose to be here. They're here because they grew up here. They're here because they love it here. And so rather than spending all of our time as a government or as a chamber of commerce, attracting the Fortune 500 companies and getting them to relocate here from somewhere else, which, oh, by the way, every other jurisdiction around the country and around the globe is doing the same thing, trying to get them to come there. And therefore, it's kind of a race to the bottom because each one is trying to give them more tax incentives and more incentives to come here than, than the next guy. And so by the time you have convinced somebody to come here, you know, is there any benefit left in them actually doing so? And again, there's a balance to be achieved here. You can't give up on trying to lure large companies here and large organizations here. Had Governor Bashir not done that, we wouldn't have the battery plants near Elizabethtown that's, that's going to be here and going to create an, an unbelievable number of jobs in a business that's the future of automobiles and, and mobility. So you can't ignore those things. But the more you spend time and resources encouraging the small businesses that are already here to grow, it's less likely that they're going to end up leaving if you've cultivated those businesses than not. And so they're going to be here for the long haul. And so I just think that it makes more sense to me that we spend that time and, and money on the front end and see if we can create jobs that way as opposed to focusing on, on the big fish. I totally agree, and I hope you will indulge me, Andrew. I used to work for the Natural Resources Research Institute in Duluth, Minnesota, which was part of the University of Minnesota. What their mission was, was to create homegrown, high-tech, high-pay jobs. And the way that they did it is that the Institute, Natural Resources Research Institute, was an incubator. And they had a, a wood products department. They had a minerals because they were up in Duluth, which was pretty rural. They had water and they had a business group. And those parts of the, of the institute were there in order to incubate businesses. If anybody in Minnesota had an idea for starting a business, they could present it to the Natural Resources Research Institute. And then the institute, if they liked the idea, would provide for them all of these resources, all of these PhDs that were good at wood products, water resources, minerals, and they would work together to sometimes create pilot projects. And they created hundreds, if not thousands, of fabulous businesses and jobs. So um, I would really recommend that model as something to think about. And, and there's, I'm sure they're still going strong. I was there back in 1986, but it no, was. No, I'm sure they are. And again, 
especially when you have a research university right here at our doorstep. I mean, you know, we have all sorts of innovation coming out of the Speed School and and other parts of UofL. Um, And so we should spend a lot of energy working with, you know, UofL and Bellarmine and Spalding and anybody else who's thinking at a deep level on these kinds of issues. How do we help them grow and create jobs? And to me, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Um, I've never really understood so much the, the other side of it. And, and maybe maybe it's because we're in a, a mid-sized city. And so, you know, maybe New York City or Houston or L.A., you know, has a higher success rate of getting these large Fortune 500 companies to come and relocate to their city. And since we're kind of a, a mid-sized city and, and we have to try to, you know, compete against the big dogs, maybe we don't have as high a success rate. But I love Louisville, and I think there's all sorts of reasons to be here. But I just prefer taking the people who are already here who already know that, right? I don't have to convince them. They already know it's great here, and that mm-hmm. they're, they're here for a reason. And I'd rather help them grow their business than try to convince somebody that, that exactly. this is a yeah. good place to be. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's a really, really good example of a public-private partnership. The, the only strings that I would say I would attach, like if, if we if we as government subsidized or, you know, seeded, uh, you know, somebody's business, the only strings that I would say, you know, are attached is that we want you to support your fellow entrepreneur. So when somebody comes to you with a, an ask or an idea that you help cultivate that entrepreneurial climate. And from my perspective, that's the only strings that need to be attached there Um, because people talk about that all the time, that it's really that kind of innovative climate that is Mm -hmm. the most effective at not only, you know, growing jobs, but also encouraging others who are doing the same kind of, you know, project startups to join in and, and do the same thing and participate in that climate. Yeah, and that was the whole mission of the Resources Research Institute that I worked at. That was their mission, was to create jobs. So they had to go out into the community and reach out to people and let them know that they were there for them. I'm going to spend a little bit more time kind of familiarizing myself with how much of our time and resources we're spending approaching the model that I'm talking about as opposed to the the other. I couldn't put a percentage on it. You know, and I don't know what the right balance is, but I do want to spend mm-hmm. some time and energy figuring out where are we now and does that make sense, in my opinion, going forward. Okay, so I was going to ask you about tax increment finance districts. Um, if you could maybe go into a little explanation of what that is and how it fits into an economic development model here in Louisville. I think tax increment finance districts get a little bit of a bad rap. A lot of times, People think that the local residents don't have a say and, and the project kind of exists outside of everything that's around it. But there are a couple of things about TIFs, tax increment finance districts, that I think work mm-hmm. really well. First, they are entirely based on performance. Uh-huh. So you have a certain amount of tax revenue that's coming in from, from a district and you, you draw a map around that district and you say, here's the TIF district that we're dealing with. And a certain amount of tax revenue is coming into the coffers at a certain date. And that's your baseline. 
And then once the project that receives the benefit of the, of the TIFs district is built, then you start calculating what additional tax revenue has resulted from that development. And if no additional tax base results from that development, then the, the project receives zero money. So in that instance, it's entirely performance-based. And I'll give you a really good example of that. I was until recently on the Louisville Arena Authority Board that you know oversees the, the Yum Center downtown. And there's a TIF district that supports the financing structure for the, uh, for the Yum Center. And we were receiving in 2018, 19, let's say, I think we were getting about $13 million a year based on our performance, getting that amount of money uh, to help support the debt service and operation of the Yum Center. Well, COVID hits and all of the businesses downtown and in and around the arena shut down and our performance as it relates to our baseline numbers goes below where that baseline number was. So in 2021, the arena authority received zero, not one dime out of the TIF. So that's a pretty clear example of you know, if the project performs as expected and as advertised, then that increased tax base goes to help support the project that was supported by the TIF district. So that's, that's one. And then the second piece of that is there are two streams of revenue that come into play there. One is a local revenue, and then the other is state revenue. And as we talked about previously, we do have a, a very unique relationship between Metro Louisville and the state legislature. And a lot of people out in the state and in the state legislature aren't terribly keen on investing tax dollars, even though Louisville you know, produces a lot of those tax dollars. They aren't keen on investing those tax dollars in Louisville. And one of the ways that we can almost, in a kind of stealthy type way of getting the state to invest in Metro Louisville is through these TIFs, because a large majority of the tax revenue that's redirected into that TIF district is state revenue. And so, you know, it is a way that the state invests in a project there in Louisville that kind of goes a little bit unnoticed by the state legislature at some level. And so that's a big benefit to a TIF district. And then finally, there are criteria that are and should be in place that you have to meet to justify and say, here's the ways we meet those criteria and, and should be able to get a TIF district. And if a project doesn't meet those criteria, then they don't get a TIF district. And if, if we want to change those criteria, if we don't think those criteria are stringent enough, then I'm perfectly willing to have that conversation. You know, what justifies creating a TIF district? What kind of project is justified? That's a conversation worth having. But it, it's a good way to promote economic activity. I think the answer is definitely yes. It's a little complicated for me, but as I understand it, then if it generates more tax revenue in that TIF district, then those increased revenues, they go back to like the Yum Center. Is that right? That's correct. And each one is, is negotiated a little bit differently. Uh-huh. Um, so each one's a little bit different, but yes. So the, the tax revenue that was coming to the Yum Center was going, that $13 million was going straight toward helping us pay debt service and pay up cost of operation. Okay. So you're hoping with the TIF district to generate more taxes. 
in the surrounding area. However, there's a criticism of it that it also will lead to gentrification. Have you heard that criticism? I have, but let me be honest here. Uh-huh. The, the most criticism that I've heard is the TIF district that was created by the state legislature to try to jumpstart growth in the West End. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what I would say is let's not put the cart before the horse. If we can do something in the West End of Louisville to keep property values from continuing to plummet, mm-hmm. then that's a good thing. And to talk about gentrification of the West End at this point in time, to me, is cart before the horse. I mean, if, if we ever in my lifetime get to a point where we've been able to redevelop the West End of town to a point where rising property values and increased taxes among people who've lived there for a long time, my gosh, would I be pleased to have to cross that bridge at, at that time? Because mm-hmm. currently, for the last 50 years, We've had nothing but disinvestment and plummeting property values and nothing we've done. And frankly, we haven't done a whole lot, but has worked. And so if there is a mechanism like a TIF that we could use to put a floor under, under falling property values and create some energy for additional growth and investment in the area, I have a hard time apologizing for that. And, and if we get to a point where that area of town is gentrifying, then boy, I'll cross that bridge at that time, and I'll be the first to say I'm surprised, but I'm pleasantly surprised, and let's do everything we can to try to keep people who have lived here a long time from feeling that pain. Does that make sense? For me, it seems like a little bit like let's worry about something that may happen 10, 15, 20 years from now, but in the meantime, let's try to keep the property values from plummeting, which is what they've been doing for 50 years. Well, let me, let me say one more thing on a more sure. positive note. The best economic development project, the best development project I think that has been announced in my lifetime uh-huh. is the new hospital in West Louisville. That, to me, is going to be a project that feeds all sorts of additional ancillary projects uh, and is going to become an anchor to uh, revitalization of that. Part which of town. Hosp- which is it? The Norton Hospital that was, I'm pretty sure it was Norton, uh, uh-huh. that was announced in, I think it's at, at 18th Street. I'm not sure about that. And the announcement of that development is the best, most significant development project that has been announced in my lifetime. I really do believe that. Uh, a hospital will create all sorts of ancillary businesses and ancillary investments mm-hmm. that is better than you know, any tips that we could do anywhere. And again, that's not to disparage TIFs. It's just that mm-hmm. when we make these kinds of investments in our community, mm-hmm. we are going to see the, the fruit of that investment for decades to come. Wow. I didn't know about that. Uh, when is it projected to begin? Do you know? Uh, I'm not entirely sure, but I want to say in the next year or two, they're going to break ground on it. But it is a, an extremely exciting uh, proposition. Huh. Another question that I had, which you had brought up about promoting a a more vital and vibrant downtown, was that since the pandemic, so many people have chosen to work from home, and we have lots, and you mentioned this earlier in our conversation, we have a lot more empty office spaces now. So do you 
have any thoughts on how to do that, making the downtown more vital and more vibrant? Well, it's, a, that's, it's another one of these complex issues that yes, you know, I, I, w- I wish I had an easy answer for. You know, the most disappointing thing to me, uh-huh. um, and I know this is happening in cities all over the country, is that there used to be all of these organic businesses that supported the workforce that came downtown every day during the week. And if you come downtown now, and I wasn't coming every day until I started coming to City Hall, but there are very few of those businesses remaining. So mm-hmm. when you're when you're in downtown right now, you don't notice so much that an office tower is, you know, a third empty or or something like that. But I'm telling you, you certainly notice when you're looking for a place to eat lunch and there are only a few places left. And that is a direct reflection and a direct result of fewer and fewer uh, people coming downtown to work. I hope, again, we talk about pendulum swinging. I hope that sooner than later, uh, we as a people and business leaders realize that everyone working from home is not good for productivity, it's not good for mental health, it's not good for a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And we decide that maybe we need to have more people uh, collaborating and coming back into an office environment. Um, So I'm hoping there's a little bit of that that counterbalances some of what the pandemic did to push the pendulum in one direction. Mm -hmm. And then the flip side of that is, listen, we we do have a lot of, of space that was built for a different purpose. And I, I wanna make sure that in our land development code, we have enough flexibility to, to allow people to come in and reimagine what that space can be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, when you, you're talking about not recreating the wheel and using kind of best practices and, and things that people are doing in other places, certainly that's happening in other cities around the country where they're retrofitting and doing an adaptive reuse of an old office building into um, into housing. It could be high-end housing, you know, depending on, on the building. It could be affordable housing. It could be luxury housing. It could be, you know, mm-hmm. anything in between. Right. Um, and so, and then I think from a programmatic standpoint, government, we need to continue focusing on events and things for people to do that bring more and more people downtown. Uh, I've heard from a number of people that they're afraid to come downtown and it just breaks my heart because mm-hmm. I have never felt that. Mm-hmm. I have never felt that. I don't feel that now. Um, and the only way to eliminate that obstacle is to to encourage people to come back downtown and to see for themselves. Yeah, yeah. And I, I had also wanted to ask you a, a little bit about environmental. I also wanted We can to... have a whole show about environmental issues. I'm yes, telling you. Yes, that's what that's I wanted a... to come to us, environmental, because we didn't. I'm I'm absolutely no expert, but I certainly, uh-huh. you know, believe that the transformation, environmental transformation has to occur at the local level. If we mm-hmm. sit around waiting for state legislatures and Congress to do something about it, uh, we'll be waiting for the rest of our lives. So I think there's enormous opportunity at the local level mm-hmm. to uh, mm-hmm. to try to do some really transformative things from mm-hmm. an energy and an environment standpoint. Is that something you'd like to come back later and talk about on my show? I'd be happy to, Ruth. It might be the kind of thing where we'd want to have somebody who is you yeah. know, more attuned to, to what's going on. And then yeah. I'd be happy to talk about how it relates to kind of the process of, of government and, mm-hmm. you know, how government may may be able to be in a position to encourage the growth of that mm-hmm. industry uh, here at the local level. 
and actually it would be more in line with i don't know if you know justin mogg his show i do sustainability yeah, now I do. well i i really want to thank you councilman owen i really appreciate your being on my show today i learned a lot and i hope the best for you thank you so much Thank you so much. I hope you can tell from my voice how excited I am to be to yes. have this opportunity. Yes. To yes. to serve the Ninth District and to serve Metro Louisville. I'm I'm enjoying myself and I feel so grateful to to have the opportunity. And that was Andrew Owen, Metro Councilman, representing the Ninth District. And keep listening to and maybe even engaging with this station. We invite you to go to www.forwardradio.org and see where you might fit into this community conversation. Thank you for listening to Election Good.